Thanks for listening. The following is an audio presentation from High Country Christian Church. For more information, please visit www.highcountrychristian.com. I want to share with you something today. Uh, The title of my message this morning is titled, A Portrait of Grace. A Portrait of Grace. Uh, I was inspired, feeling inspired recently, having a conversation earlier this week about the subject of grace. And was reminded of this passage, and I want to show you grace out of the Old Testament this morning. A lot of people don't believe that there is such a thing as grace in the Old Testament, but there absolutely is. If you look hard enough, you can find Jesus and his grace on every single page. Amen. So I want to show you a picture and a portrait of grace today. There's a passage that comes from a little tiny book at the back of the Old Testament that most people are not accustomed to reading, and that's the book of Zechariah. How many of you spend loads of time in the book of Zechariah? Amen. Show of hands. Yeah. Okay, no hands. How many of you didn't know there was a book called Zechariah at the end of the Old Testament? All right. No, there's a passage that comes from Zechariah chapter 3, and it's 10 verses long. I'm going to read it for you this morning out of the New Living Translation. And if you have another translation, that's fine. You can just listen along. But this is a portrait of grace. This is what grace looks like this morning. Let me read it to you from Zechariah 3 beginning in verse 1. It says, Then the angel showed me Jeshua, or Joshua, great name, the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. The accuser, Satan, was there at the angel's right hand, making accusations against Jeshua. And the Lord said to Satan, I, the Lord, reject your accusations, Satan. Yes, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebukes you. This man is like a burning stick that has been snatched from the fire. Jeshua's clothing was filthy as he stood there before the angel. So the angel said to the others standing there, take off his filthy clothes. And turning to Jeshua, he said, see, I have taken away your sins. And now I am giving you these fine new clothes. Then I said, they should also place a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean priestly turban on his head and dressed him in new clothes while the angel of the Lord stood by. Verse 6, then the angel of the Lord spoke very solemnly to Jeshua and said, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies says. If you follow my ways and carefully serve me, then you will be given authority over my temple and its courtyards. I will let you walk among these others standing here. Listen to me, O Jeshua, the high priest, and all you other priests. You are symbols of things to come. Soon I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. Now look at the jewel I've set before Jeshua, a single stone with seven facets. I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord of heaven's armies. And watch this. I will remove the sins of this land in a single day. And on that day, says the Lord of heaven's armies, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit with you peacefully under your own grapevine and fig tree. What we witness in this passage is a portrait of grace. This is what grace looks like when it encounters your life. You see, we... 
we have a lot of terminology built into our Christian culture. And we have a lot of terminology built around the term grace or the word grace. We say things like it was amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Oh, if it wasn't for grace, where would I be? Right? Like, well, like Frankie and I were talking about this week earlier. You, you, go to, you go to a lot of churches, you hear people say this. It was grace that kept me. Well, what is grace? What is this thing that we've built up all this terminology around but sometimes fail to understand? What is grace? I like Charles Capps' definition of grace, probably my favorite definition and the one that I most often use. Check this out. If you're writing, if you're taking notes, you probably want to write this down. It's really, really good. Charles Capps says that grace is God's willingness to use all of heaven's resources on my behalf, even when I don't deserve it. <laughs> Isn't that good? I mean, there's some, you know, grace, the, 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 uh, the, 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 Sort of standard answer for grace that we get a lot is unmerited favor. Well, what is grace? Well, it's unmerited favor. Well, that's true, but that's just like saying, what is ice cream? Well, it's chocolate. Yeah, but there's a whole lot more ice cream out there than just chocolate, right? Amen. Glory to God. Yes, amen. Say amen. That's a good, that's good preaching. There's more ice cream out there in the world than just chocolate. Hallelujah. Yeah, amen. I do a dance. No, see, see unmerited favor is just one element of grace. That's why I like Charles Capps' definition because it seems more, it feels more well-rounded and complete. God's willingness to use all of heaven's resources on our behalf even when we don't deserve it. Sounds like grace to me, doesn't it? So as I, as, as I had this conversation earlier this week about grace, I was reminded of this passage in Zechariah. And, and I, what I want to do is go down through those verses that we just read and take a look a little deeper into this passage and ask the question, what does grace do or how does grace respond in our lives? What does grace do? So we're going to ask that question over and over again and we're going to answer it several times through these verses. Verse 1 and 2, I'll read it for you again. The angel showed me Jeshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. The accuser, Satan, was there at the angel's right hand, making accusations against Jeshua. And the Lord said to Satan, I, the Lord, reject your accusations, Satan. Yes, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebukes you. This man is like a burning stick that's been snatched from the fire. What does grace do? Verses 1 and 2, it rejects the accusations of the enemy. What does grace do in your life this morning? It rejects the accusations of the enemy. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10 says that, the, that, the, that Satan himself is the accuser of the brethren. And it says in Revelation that he stands before the throne of God day and night accusing and accusing and accusing and accusing the brethren. How many of you have lived long enough to figure out the devil doesn't like you? <laughs> doesn't like you, does he? This idea of accusing, of accusation, is this idea of hurling repeatedly over and over again. You know, it's not the... I grew up in Niagara Falls, New York, is where I was born, and, and if you grew up around there, you heard a lot about the history of Niagara Falls and how it changed a lot over the years, 
and over the centuries. And one of the things that you found out in school as a kid was that the water going over Niagara Falls was so powerful that over time, over hundreds of years, it caused erosion and it would slowly, the falls was slowly moving back because of the erosion. You know, it's, it's not that a splash of water on your face will kill you, but enough of it over a long period of time will erode, just like water, right? That's, that's, the, that's what the enemy seeks to do in your life, is to consistently hurl at you accusations over and over and over and over again with an attempt to slowly push you back. You see, Niagara Falls didn't move a quarter mile in a week and a half. It took some time, right? took a lot of water going over consistently for a long period of time to slowly be pushed back. Have you ever been in that place in your life where, where the enemy has worked on you, it feels like for so long that you one day wake up and realize I'm 10 yards back from where I started? I feel like, man, God, God is still so good and he's so loving and he's so merciful and he still cares for me, but I have not progressed in the things of God. In fact, I've been subject to the enemy's accusations and I feel like I've slipped back quite a ways. That's where Jeshua the priest finds himself. Here's the enemy, Satan, hurling accusations. Look at his filthy robes. Look at his dirty turban. Look at everything that makes him a priest is out of order. If you go back in the Old Testament and you study it out, you'll find that God created very specific uh, uh, laws and specific policies over what the high priest was supposed to be dressed like. He had to have this kind of robe. It had to be this long. had to have this sash. He had to have this breastplate, this certain turban in a certain position, a, a jewel in the middle here, and jewels on his shoulders, and all this ornamentation. Is that a word, ornamentation? It is now. All this ornamentation on him in such a way that was very, very specific. And here's the accuser of the brethren. Here's the enemy standing right next to the Lord, hurling accusations and saying, all that stuff that God said was supposed to be a certain way in your life, Jeshua, you've messed it all up. You've managed to screw it up royally. Everything's dirty. Everything's gross. How many of you know that the enemy loves to accuse? How many of you have ever felt his accusation before? The beautiful thing about Revelation chapter 12 there, where it talks about the enemy being the accuser of the brethren. You know, what, you know what's so great about that verse? It says that the accuser of the brethren, the enemy, has been hurled into a bottomless pit. And there's victory for the saints. See, here's the reality. The enemy can accuse you all he wants to because the beautiful thing is God rejects his accusation. Amen. The devil will crop up and tell you what a terrible Christian you are, tell you how bad you missed it, tell you how many mistakes you made. And, and trust me, he's keeping a list. He's very happy to remind you of every area that you made a mistake, every area that you fell short. But how many of you know the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus? What does that mean? It means that God will never side with your guilt. He'll only side with what his righteousness has done for you. Oh, come on, that's good. The, 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 the God who loves you 
Your heavenly father will always reject the accusation of the enemy. The enemy will show up in your life and tell you about how terrible you were, how many times you messed up just from this morning, from the time you got up, how many times you screwed up on the way from your house to the church house. And he'll tell you, oh, you got no business lifting your hands in the sanctuary. You're a dirty, rotten piece of garbage. You fought with your wife. You fought with your husband. You kicked the cat. You sweared at the dog. You did whatever you did. You didn't pay your taxes, whatever. Amen. You dirty, filthy rat. Y'all remember them old mafia movies? You dirty rat. You killed my brother. You dirty rat. James Cagney. Y'all know what I'm talking about. The devil will call you a dirty rat until the cows come home, but God will never agree with him. God will never side with the accuser. He will always side with what his righteousness has done for you. He will always side with what Jesus did on Calvary's cross. Can you say amen? Now, as I was putting this together and as writing these notes and thinking about all this stuff, here's the Lord put in my heart. You want to hear this? Parents, parents, if you got, if you got children, listen up. We need to be attentive to this reality when we are correcting our children. When it's time to correct your kids, parents, learn to speak to who they really are rather than only speak to the wrong thing that they've done. Amen. Dads, moms, can you say that you're learning this? I'm learning this. I'm learning how to do this. Because listen, in the moment of, of the problem, in the moment of the issue, it's easy to just zero in on this is what they did wrong. And if all I do is ever approach them with what they did wrong, and I don't ever approach them with who they are to me, I'll never fix the problem. Amen. Why do I say that? Because that's how God deals with you and with me. When things go awry, the accuser of the brethren is standing right there to tell God, look, look, you can see it in verse 1. It says that he's standing, the accuser's standing right next to the angel of the Lord. He's standing right there next to the angel of the Lord. The, the devil is standing in the throne room of God this morning telling him about all the bad things you did. And it's God is so amazing that he never responds to the chatter of the enemy when dealing with you. The only response he ever has when dealing with you is to say, you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You're my child. You're my son. You're my daughter. I died for you. I rose for you. I was seated for you at the right hand of heavenly places. Come on. Amen. So grace rejects, number one, grace rejects the accusations of the enemy. Number two, from verse two, what does grace do in our life? Number two, grace lets the fire of God do its job. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What do you mean by that, pastor? God says in verse two that this man is a burning stick. You see that? It's the very last sentence. This man is like a burning stick that has been snatched from the fire. It'd be an easy sentence for us to just gloss over, but sometimes it's worth the extra time to dig in a little bit and say, what does the scripture mean there? God says, this man is like a burning stick. 
It's like he's on fire. And fire in the scripture represents two things. Those taking notes, write this down. If you're not taking notes, write this down. The fire of God represents two things in our lives. Number one, purification. And number two, boldness. Number one, purification. Number two, boldness. Why was the church in the book of Acts so doggone effective? It's because they were open to the fire of God in their lives. They were open to the, to the spirit of God who would purify who they were, number one, and number two, make them very, very bold. Both of these are supernatural works of the Holy Spirit in our lives. They're supernatural, meaning that purification and boldness are not something that we do through our, for, for ourselves through natural means. You don't go to the gym to purify your spirit, right? You can't take a walk on the greenway to get bold. Amen? No amount of protein and no carbs is going to make you a better Christian, Right? This, listen, this is not something, the fire of God does a work in you that you cannot do for yourself. It's a work of grace. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. And grace is so good, grace is so powerful that when grace encounters our lives, it lets the fire of God do its job. It lets the fire of God come and purify the stuff that doesn't need to be there. And lets the fire of God come and make us bold as lions. The Bible says the wicked may flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Number three, this is the big one, or one of the big ones. I guess they're all pretty big. Number three, what does grace do? What does grace do? Number three, grace removes sin. And replaces it with righteousness. Grace removes sin and replaces it with righteousness. Look at verses 3 and 4. Jeshua's clothing was filthy as he stood there before the angel. So the angel said to the others standing there, take off his filthy clothes. And turning to Jeshua, he said, see... I have taken away your sins, and now I'm giving you these fine new clothes. What does grace do for you, for me? It removes sin and replaces it with righteousness. Grace is willing to touch what's filthy. Amen. Y'all remember, remember how many times Jesus ministered to lepers? Over and over in the gospel, he ministered to lepers, not leopards. <laughs> Wasn't on a safari. Wasn't in the Amazon. He ministered to lepers. Now, on the outside, we think that's, okay, yeah, ministered lepers, okay, big deal. Yeah, this is a group of sick people, and Jesus wanted to help them out. What is a very nice thing to do, Jesus? No, we don't understand the context. A leper, in Hebrew culture, was considered untouchable. And lepers had to live in their own colonies. They had to live outside of town. They were the lowest of the low. They were the dirtiest of the dirty. If you even got within a few feet of a leper, you were nervous about becoming unclean. 
ceremonially unclean according to the Hebrew law and tradition. You couldn't, you did not go near a leper. And here's the other thing. Lepers never went near the rest of the population. Wasn't like you're going to accidentally bump into a leper in the line at Walmart. I was just trying to get my tomatoes and there's a leper. Nobody's going to accidentally bump into a leper. Why? Because they're quarantined. They live in their own compound. They're filthy and they're dirty. The fact that Jesus even ministered to lepers should tell us that he was willing to go into a place and touch a thing that nobody else was willing to get to. No, none of the priests and the, and the rabbis and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, not one of them was out in the leper colonies trying to fix people. Jesus went out of his comfort zone and went directly to where the lepers were. Why? Because grace is willing to touch what's filthy. The accuser is going to stand at a distance and call you filthy. Grace is going to get close enough to touch your sin and call you righteous. (laughs) Come on. Grace is going to get close enough to actually get in the soup with you and change the soup. Amen. Hallelujah. Can I tell you something? We have not made a big enough deal of God's grace. Amen. You see, people, people, we, we've just not made a big deal of, of, of grace. We've not made a big enough deal of it. People worry that in order to make a big deal of God's grace, it's the same thing as telling people that it's okay to sin. Right? People say, well, you can't. Don't talk about grace, bro. Don't talk too much about grace. Hey, give him a little grace, but don't talk too much about grace because if you, if you talk too much about grace, then, then people are going to think it's okay to sin. They're going to be given a license to sin. You ever heard that before? Like 007, a license to sin. Amen. Anyway, people think that it, the, 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 religious, the religion on the inside of us starts getting nervous when we talk about grace too much. As though it would be a really bad thing if we had to make a differentiation between, yeah, God's grace is amazing, but you still shouldn't sin. People you can't talk about grace too much, because if you do, you'll have to remind people that it's not good to sin, as though that would be a bad thing. But you know, Paul actually had to deal with that. Paul had to deal with that. Paul made such a big deal about the grace of God that he takes an entire chapter in the book of Romans multiple chapters actually, but it begins in chapter six of Romans and he says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Paul was not worried about making too much of a big deal of grace because he understood if I can teach and preach the grace of God, it will actually free people from the desire of wanting to sin. Grace will come and change who they are from the inside out and then I won't have to worry about telling them, hey, you don't, you're not supposed to sin. Because their insides will have changed. Can I tell you, we should be less worried, uh, we should be less nervous about preaching grace too strong. Maybe if we haven't had to have the conversation like Paul had to have in Romans 6, maybe if we haven't yet had to tell people you don't have to sin, maybe that's because we just haven't been preaching grace hard enough. 
ouch. It hurts so good. Listen, people, most people have no trouble picking up on our ability to tell them that they've made a mistake. Right? As a matter of fact, most people expect that. The expectation of most folks in the world is that as a Christian person, when I stand before them, the thing that's going to come out of my mouth is something to the effect of telling them how bad that they are. That's the expectation. Maybe, just maybe, we should get equally good at telling people how perfect Jesus is instead of be really good at telling them how bad they are. Maybe we should get so proficient at grace that every now and again we got we to pull back and go, oh, by the way, listen, this grace thing doesn't mean it's okay to sin. You know what I'm saying? I mean, if we're going to be lopsided, let's be lopsided in the grace direction than in the beat up religion, dead works, you know, direction. Can you say amen? Notice that this verse that we read in Zechariah says, I have taken away your sins. You see, what we do is that we put all of the emphasis on the person and on their ability to be good people, on their ability to live according to what the word says. We put all the emphasis and put all the weight on their shoulders and say, you better be good or God's going to get you, you dirty... We put all the pressure on them. But in this scripture, God puts all the pressure on himself. God, the angel of the Lord, looks at Jeshua and says, I've taken away your sins. It was God who dealt with our sin, not us. Amen. You couldn't, listen, you couldn't do it if you wanted to. You couldn't fix the problem if you tried. And so many of us have tried and tried and tried and tried and tried. I tried to beat this addiction. I tried to, to, to fix this relationship. I tried to fix the sin in my life over here. I tried to be a better person. I tried to pray for three hours every day. I tried and I wore myself out. Isaiah 64 verse 6 says, Our righteousness is like filthy rags. Sound familiar? Sound like Jeshua? Sound like the high priest standing with a dirty robe and a dirty turban and everything lopsided and unfolded? And, you know, you ever, you ever, <laughs> you ever been out in public and see somebody that absolutely rolled out of bed and came to wherever it was that you were? And, and listen, listen, you could tell that their clothes were like in a ball about this size, crumpled up in a pile next to their bed. And then they just quickly put it on and it's like all kind of wrinkles. Maybe a ketchup stain on the left pant leg, you know. Maybe spilled a little coffee right here. You ever see somebody who's looked totally disheveled and you're like, what happened to you, man? That's how Jeshua is looking before God. He's... He's tried everything in his power to clean himself up. And rather than get better, it just got worse. Isaiah 64 is clear. Our righteousness is like filthy, dirty rags. You could put it this way. Our attempts at being righteous are useless. 
The high priest Jeshua in this passage can't clean his own robes. It's like no matter what you do to clean yourself, it makes you more dirty and you need Jesus to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. How many of you realize you're one Jesus away from splitting hell wide open? You need Jesus. Listen, every one of us is one Jesus away from total lack of righteousness, total depravity of sin, total chaos on the inside. You need somebody to clean you up. Amen. What does Malachi chapter 3 verse 2 says? Listen to this. This is amazing. But who will be able to endure it when he comes. Now, this is speaking of Jesus. This is an Old Testament, what's referred to as a messianic prophecy, meaning it's referring to the coming Messiah, who is Jesus, none other than Jesus Christ. And what does he say in Malachi 3? Who will be able to endure it when he, that is Jesus, comes? Who will be able to stand face to face with him when he appears? Why? For he will be like a blazing fire that refines metal or like a strong soap that bleaches clothes. That's in the Bible. Who will be able to stand? Who is going to be in Jeshua's place to stand before Jesus when he comes? Because he will be like a refining fire that purges metal and like a launderer's soap is how it reads in the old King James. I love it. Like a launderer's soap like a strong soap that bleaches clothes. What does grace do? Grace removes your sin and replaces it with God's righteousness. It's because grace refuses to leave you in the condition it finds you in. Glory to God. Grace refuses to leave you in the condition it found you in. Listen to Isaiah 61.10. It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a groom puts on a turban and a bride adorns herself with jewels. I mean, if these, don't you love it when the Bible does this and comes together wonderfully? Like, listen, God never leaves you in the condition that he finds you in. Grace refuses to, to let you stay in the situation that you're in. And can I be honest with you? That's why so many people actually get offended with grace. So many people, they come and they don't want to change. Anybody ever not wanted to change? Anybody ever been in a situation where you say, I just don't want, yeah, you know what, I don't want change. I like the way I am. It's like a little toddler with a poopy diaper. Right? Right? As they're walking around, listen, if y'all have kids, you've known this, you can just see it before you can even smell it. They're walking around with a little bulge. You say, sweetie, did you poo-poo? Did you poo-poo in your diaper? Mm, no, I'm good. It's great. Things are fine in my world. Thank you for asking. I appreciate the sentiment, but no, I'm good. It's warm and it's mine. Leave me alone. Right? 
That's why so many people, listen, this is why a lot of people actually get, they, they, they get offended at grace because grace, listen, love and grace work together and God doesn't want you to sit in your own poop, okay? God doesn't want you to sit in the mess. Why? Because he loves you because he understands there's a rash coming there's a problem that's on its way. I've got to get you out of the situation that you can't seem to recognize as a problem. Come on. Come on. I know it's, I know it's a funny analogy, but it's actually really potent. <laughs> you see what I did there? You see what I, Yeah, you'll get that later. Listen. <laughs> oh, my. No, grace never is never okay with leaving you in the situation that you're in. That's why it's got to separate you from something you think is okay. And what we do a lot of times, guys, we actually don't let the grace of God work because we, we try to get in between people and God and try to temper what the Spirit of God's doing in them. We actually don't want to tell them the truth that, hey, the way you're living is really not a good thing. I'm not telling you that because I hate you. I'm telling you that because I love you, and I want the grace of God to have access into your life to actually fix the problem. And so what we do is we actually block people from receiving from God. But grace, grace never does that. Grace doesn't leave you in the same. Grace is going to say, you know what? Let's get rid of those robes. I have this thing called righteousness that I want you to wear. I have this robe of salvation and this robe of righteousness that I want to adorn you in. Listen to what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says. One of my favorite scriptures in all of Corinthians. It says, for he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let me read this to you from like five translations. The New Living says, this is 2 Corinthians 5, 21. New Living says, for God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. The Message Bible says it this way. How, you ask? In Christ, God put the wrong on him who never did anything wrong so we could be put right with God. The Amplified says it this way. He made Christ who knew no sin to judiciously be sin on our behalf so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. That is, we would be made acceptable to him and placed in right relationship with him by his gracious loving kindness. And this one's my favorite. The Living Bible says, For God took the sinless Christ and poured into him our sins. Then in exchange, he poured God's goodness into us. Grace will never leave you in the situation that it finds you in. Number four. What does grace do for you? Grace changes how you think. Grace changes how you think. Verse 5 says this, Then I said, they should also place a clean turban on his head 
So they put a clean priestly turban on his head and dressed him in new clothes while the angel of the Lord stood by. Grace takes what used to surround your mind and replaces it with something new. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 in the, in the New King James says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see that turban that's mentioned in that, in that verse there is representative of what surrounds our thinking. Why we think the way we do. What are the thoughts that we are thinking? And, and God says grace is not just going to you know, reject the accusations of the enemy. It's not just going to let the fire of God do its job. It's not just going to make you righteous and replace it. It's actually going to come alongside too and begin to change the way you think. That after you've received righteousness in your heart, God, now that he's worked on your heart, is going to go to work on your head and start to change the things you think and why you think them and why, did, why do I do these habits? Why am I doing this? Why do I think this way? Why do I process things this way? God will begin to take his word and go to work on your mind. Unfortunately, that's where many Christians stop. And I don't have time to get into it, but it's just true. Unfortunately, a lot of us stop right there. We receive our righteousness. We receive purification from our sins. And then we go, I'm comfortable with that. We don't want God to come and start to change the way we think. That would be too uncomfortable, Lord. I'm happy with my judgmental thinking, God. I don't want grace to come and reformat that. I like thinking I'm better than him. I like thinking I'm better than her. I, loved, I love this position that I've created for myself of loftiness. <laughs> hey, if I'm stepping on toes, I'm stepping on mine too. So just don't, get, don't, don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> no, God's interested in seeing our lives transformed by what we think being changed. Number five. Verses 6 through 9, grace empowers you to serve. Verse 6 says, if you follow my ways, carefully observe me. Watch, I will give you authority over my temple and its courtyards. Grace actually gives you authority and anointing to work for God. Amen. Amen. I'm telling you, this is a portrait of grace. This whole passage, you just get into this and read it every day this week. Read verses 1 through 10. Just read this whole chapter and just let it reformat you. Let it begin to adjust you so that you realize grace actually gives you everything that you need. It's going to stop the voice of the enemy in your life. It's going to cause the fire of God to work effectively in you. It's going to take away the sin that used to be a problem. Notice what it says down at the very bottom of this passage. It says that he'll take away the sin of this land in one day. When did that happen? When did that happen? When did God take away the sin of the entire land in one day? It was when Jesus hung on the cross and said, it's finished. It's finished. What's finished? The sin problem. What's finished? The separation between God and man. The sin issue was dealt its final blow when Jesus uttered the words, it is finished. 
So grace will do all of these things, and then it will come, and it will change the way that you think, and then it will come, it just keeps getting better, then it will come and enter your life and actually empower you and bring something called the anointing, which is God's supernatural ability to minister and work for him, to be a representation of God in the earth. Finally, number five. No, number six. What are we on? Number six? Who's taking notes? Number six. All right, good. Thank you. Number six. Grace makes a promise to you about your future. Grace makes a promise to you about your future. Verse 10 says, on that day, says the Lord of heaven's armies, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit with you peacefully under your own grapevine and your own fig tree. The Bible says in first, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20, it says that all the promises of God are in Christ, yes and amen. Jeremiah 29, 11 is one of the most quoted scriptures in the whole Bible, and God says, I've got plans for you. And they're plans for your prosperity and not for your destruction. They're plans to give you a hope and to give you what? A future. What is, what is the thing that we love to talk about at Hope Church? So we love to talk about the future because it's filled with hope for those who put their trust in Jesus. Grace will come into your life, and as it invades your world, it will begin to give you promises about the future that God has for you about the hope and the plan and the promise that God has made to you. Hallelujah. How many of you believe that that's good news this morning? Amen. Grace doesn't leave you in the condition it finds you in. It totally transforms you from top to bottom. And then it turns you into this beautiful tool to be used in God's hand to change the world around you. And then it begins to give you just promises about the future. See, God's interested in redemption about the whole package, a total package, a complete redesign from top to bottom. The Bible says that when Jesus entered into the upper room with the, with the disciples, after he had ro- risen from the dead, he came in, he came, the Bible says he appeared in the midst of them. They're just sitting there eating, and all of a sudden Jesus comes in, and boom, there he is. Like he just walked through the wall, he just appeared. And, and, and the first words out of his mouth is this, peace be unto you. Now, now, sometimes we read that and we think, oh, he said peace be unto you because they were terrified because he just, they were like the toddler, you know, when he just showed up in the middle of the room. He just appeared before him and he, and he had to say peace because they were scared. I, I, that might be true. What I believe that really, the real reason he said peace be unto you is because he had just risen back from the dead and because he was there to announce to them that there was now peace between God and man. The first words out of his mouth after his resurrection to his disciples are peace. There's now peace between heaven and earth. There's now peace between God and his children. 
Why do I say that? Because I believe the plan of God for your life is for peace. Total, complete peace. The Bible says, uh, the, the, the Hebrew word for peace, many of you know it, is the word shalom. And the easiest way to define that word in English, that Hebrew word in English, is to say nothing missing, nothing broken, like a pizza that hasn't been cut yet, like an apple pie that's got no slices missing from it, like the whole thing is there. Not, uh, not 80% of my life's okay, but my mental condition is a real problem. It's really missing. Not everything in my life, I'm about 60% put together, Pastor, but I got some real relationship issues over here. This piece is missing. Oh, man, you know what? I'm happy and life is good and it's great, but my health is terrible. I can't get out of bed anymore in, in the morning without aches and pains, and I can't seem to shake this disease. And I, None of that. That's not peace. God's plan is for your life to be at peace, which means nothing missing, nothing broken. 100%, the whole pie is there. Nobody has taken a slice from the pizza. It's all there. That's why we're teaching healing the heart class. Why? Because so many people are walking around with three or four slices missing, wondering why can't I fix my life? Why can't this situation get any better? It's because God wants to put back what the enemy took. It's because the accuser of the brethren's been standing next to you hurling accusations for years and it's pulled and pulled and pulled and taken things away from you. And it's time for God to come and add back to you what the enemy took from you. That's grace. That's grace. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm a little parched. That's grace. That's how it works. That's the way God created you to be full and complete and whole in him. And guys, it's not according to what you can do. That's the, that's the beauty of this message. It's not about what you can add to yourself. It's not about what you can accomplish. It's about what he does by his grace in you. It's about what the Holy Spirit wants to bring to your life. You can't fix yourself. Amen. No amount of time in the gym is going to bring spiritual wholeness. Amen. Some of y'all like to run. I hate running. No amount of running is going to, is, you know, is going to add to your spirit. It requires the work of the Holy Spirit. It requires the hand of grace to come in and change what you can't change. And the beauty is that God is so willing. He's so willing this morning. Are you willing to receive? Are you willing to receive? Because he's ready to give. Matter of fact, he's already given everything he's going to give because he gave Jesus. He gave it all. He's so willing that he came and got on the cross himself. He didn't send a delegate, right? He didn't, he didn't send a, 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 you know, a, a party of angels down to, to the world to try to fix things up and say, well, we represent heaven and we're here to tell you that God loves you. No, he actually came himself. Amen. What does the Bible say in John 3, 16? Come on. 
For God so loved the world that he what? That he gave his only son. He didn't, he didn't just love the world so much that he shouted down from heaven, I love you. No. He came himself. He got on the cross himself to do for you what you cannot do for you. He's willing and he's ready to pour himself into everyone who's willing to receive. Amen. Now I want us to, I want us to, you can go ahead and stand up to your feet. We hope that this message inspired you and filled your heart with faith. If you would like to visit our church, check out www.highcountrychristian.com for service times and location information. Thanks again for listening to this audio presentation from High Country Christian Church, where Jesus loves you, we love you, and your life counts.